primary care knowledge boost, tips for managing perimenopause and menopause. Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. We have had quite a lot of requests to cover menopause and HRT and it has been on the cards for a wee while now so we are super excited to be able to share this with you. Absolutely. Um, We spoke to Dr Jacqueline Gatenby to get her approach to managing perimenopause and menopause. In our chat we go through the common symptoms associated with the menopause and lower oestrogen, alternatives to HRT, who we should be offering HRT to uh, and the pros and cons of HRT. Yep. And uh, we also talk about the contraindications and her approach to this, um, her process for deciding the types of HRT to give, um, when you might consider testosterone and contraception with HRT. Yeah. And we'll be back at the end to share our learning points. And we hope you find the chat as useful as we did. So, yes, we kick off with an easy one. Um, (laughs) Would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners? Hi, my name is uh, Jacqueline Gatenby and I'm a GP at Pennygate Medical Centre in Hindley. Um, and so today we're, we're talking about HRT, um, so we thought it might be quite nice um, if you could set the scene, just kind of explain why it's important for us to talk about HRT today. Uh, yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, you're probably, well, you are both aware that I've had a special interest in women's health throughout my general practice career. And if I'm honest, uh, I suppose I've been increasingly interested in the menopause and HRT as I myself have approached my own menopause. But in doing that sort of research for myself, it really struck home with me that sort of most of our discussions around menopause and HRT are very much focused on the perceived risks of taking it and not very much on actually the, the benefits of taking HRT. Yeah. I mean, I'm in my early 50s and I was a relatively newly qualified GP back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when basically overnight HRT prescriptions worldwide were halved. And that was following the media reporting of um, the WHI study in the US, which was the Women's Health Initiative Initiative Study. And as we know, they... Uh, basically they reported very inaccurately results coming out of that study and applied very flawed statistical analysis. But basically what that meant was that that overnight a generation of women were denied access to HRT really, Um, not just for their symptoms at the time, but also as we're increasingly aware, the long-term benefits of HRT. And I think, and we haven't really recovered from that, if I'm honest. You know, we, we know that one in four women do have menopausal symptoms quite severely, and yet only 12% of women actually take HRT. So that, you know, really, I, I'm, I am interested in, in trying to not particularly get more people taking it, but I think we do need to offer people the choice. Yeah, that's a, I love your orientations. <laughs> they get, it's really, it's clearly a passion and it's lovely that you can speak to all of those angles of it as well. Um, so if we start with definitions, would you mind defining menopause and perimenopause for us? So yeah, so menopause, uh, sort of medical definition is basically 12 months after your periods have stopped um, in the absence of anything artificially stopping them. And perimenopause is the time leading up to that. And that varies in different women. Some women have a perimenopause lasting years and some some women have a few months. And it's characterised by 
usually changes in periods. So women are still having periods, but they're either close together, further apart, lighter, shorter, that sort of thing. And can be and can be accompanied by menopausal symptoms and then postmenopause is basically all your time after the menopause so and that leads quite nicely into asking what the common symptoms might be of both um, menopause or perimenopause so basically we have estrogen receptors absolutely everywhere in the body and consequently the symptoms that we can get because of decreasing estrogen levels are many and varied so obviously the the commonest ones are period changes as I've just mentioned hot flushes night sweats and then sort of slightly more perhaps infrequently mood changes hair and skin changes fatigue poor sleep brain fog, memory problems, vaginal and urinary symptoms, lack of libido, joint pains, muscle aches, increased headaches, increased migraines, dry eyes, dry mouth, anxiety. So loads and loads of symptoms. And I think it's really important that I'm as guilty as anyone. I can think of lots of women in my general practice career who haven't perhaps presented with your classic you know, hot flushes, night sweats, but with some of those other symptoms. And perhaps I haven't really, it's not really sent off a light bulb in my head to think about the menopause. So I think if, um, I think I would like to sort of get that across today that I think, you know, if you've got women coming in of a certain age who are presenting with those slightly more infrequent symptoms, then we need to be thinking about menopause. Yeah. So really casting the net quite wide. Yeah, and I think it might be useful at this point to mention that obviously well, average age for menopause in the UK is around 51 and anything above 45 is deemed a normal you know, menopausal time. Mm-hmm. Under the age of 45, it's an early menopause, but below the age of 40, it's premature ovarian insufficiency. And actually, this really surprised me, but one in 100 women have primary ovarian insufficiency. So you know, we are likely to see those women in surgery. So although I did say previously that, you know, women of a certain age, we do still need to remember those women that could be presenting prematurely with perimenopause. And that's vitally important because we do know that those women are much more at an increased risk of osteoporosis and cardiovascular disease. And they should be really counselled well about the benefits of taking HLT. Yeah, that's really important. So uh, which women do you think we should be offering HRT to? So when when you get your kind of general practice clinic, what are the women that we should be triggering alarm bells or things that where you would be having those conversations about HRT with them? I think my practice has changed over the last few years when I've been much more um, so proactively um, talking about menopause with with women. Um, A lot of women don't actually come in and say, I want HRT. Um, And actually, you know, we all know the health inequalities that have been very well documented in the UK um, for many years. But HRT is a prime example of that. Women, the recent studies have shown that women in lower socioeconomic uh, groups are a third less likely to take HRT. And that really, in some ways, those are the women who perhaps would benefit most from HRT in terms of preventative measures in terms of cardiovascular health and that sort of thing. So I think we need to 
we need to be a bit more proactive and we need to be looking at, as, you, as, you, as we've already said, those vast number of symptoms. We should just be routinely asking about periods and whether, you know, those have changed and whether this possibly could be due to um, decrease in oestrogen levels. Um, other women who we ought to be thinking about as well, there's a, a sort of, it's not a new condition, but there's a new term called genitourinary syndrome of the menopause, GSM, which was, a, the term was coined in 2014 and it was set, set to replace really those terms like vulvovaginal atrophy, atrophic vaginitis. Those terms were seen as to be quite limited as they didn't really cover the whole of the the symptoms due to oestrogen de- uh, levels decreasing, which occur in the genitourinary symptom. 70% of menopausal women have GU symptoms, but only 7% of women take treatment for that. So I think we can all think of women who present with, you know, painful sex, um, postcoital bleeding that isn't due to anything uh, sinister, recurrent UTIs, you know, urgency, vulval burning, itching, all those sorts of things are all encompassed into this condition called GSM and those women do really really well if we treat them with well systemic HRT but certainly we don't need to worry about giving older women local oestrogen for those symptoms we know that local oestrogen is extremely safe and you can give uh, oestrogen pessaries creams vaginally at any age So we should be remembering that in our older women who we might not necessarily want to prescribe HRT, but actually would do well if they've got these GU symptoms from perhaps giving a trial of some local oestrogen. Okay. So if we set the scene, for example, if we're talking to a patient and uh, we're diagnosing perimenopausal symptoms, they're suffering from night sweats, mood swings and vaginal dryness, how would you counsel them through their options? Yeah. You know, nice guide guidance have developed, obviously, guidelines to deal with this um, about a few years ago. And obviously, we need to take an individualised approach. It's really, really important not just to get the symptoms off the patient. We need to know what the impact of those symptoms are having. Mm-hmm. Women really struggle at work, in relationships. Um, they don't really understand what's happening to them. There should be, you know, a time in their life where, you know, the kids are older and things should be getting easier from that point of view. But they're feeling really tired. They're not sleeping well because they're waking up with night sweats and they just generally feel very irritable and flat. So we need to know what the impact is having on them. And that is going to obviously influence what you might talk to them about. Some women who it's not really bothering them very much don't really want to consider HRT. You can talk to them about lifestyle. There is evidence that, you know, eating more healthily, more exercise, sort of things like yoga, Pilates can be very, very helpful for some um, symptoms of menopause. Um, And also there are other talking therapies, CBT. There is a bit of evidence that that can also help with some menopausal symptoms, strangely enough, even with hot flushes. So um, there are other things that women can do if they if they want to try. However, I would say to most women that the best treatment for the majority of those symptoms is HRT. It generally helps a lot of those symptoms better than other things. 
So when, so then obviously you need to, you know, I know most people when we talk about HRT are, uh, in fact, most patients, I would usually ask a patient, do they have any concerns about taking HRT? And obviously, invariably, most of them do say, mention the breast cancer risk, because that's the thing that's made the headlines. It, it is very tricky when, you know, women are and, and health professionals, too, are very influenced by headlines in newspapers. Um, so I try and give them a balanced view of the pros and cons of taking HRT. When they talk to me about when they say to me, I'm really scared about getting breast cancer. I do say to them, well, I, I understand that. But most women do die of other things. Most women in this country die of dementia and cardiovascular disease. And in fact, most women with a um, diagnosis of breast cancer die from something else. They don't die of their breast cancer because we have such improved mortality rates with breast cancer these days. So from that perspective, I tell them that HRT can protect them from cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, diabetes, possibly dementia and and mental health problems, um, but also, you know, to acknowledge that there have been studies which have shown an association between HRT and breast cancer, which appears to depend on the type of, of HRT that you take. But the consensus is that that risk is still low. It's comparable to other risk factors such as obesity and alcohol intake and smoking. And I do try to tell them that there has never been any study that has shown that there's an increase in mortality with taking HRT, which I think is important because I think automatically people think breast cancer means um, means death. Mm-hmm. And that isn't the case. There's never been a study that's shown there's been an increased uh, mortality taking HRT. And actually, the converse is true. There has been some evidence that HRT can decrease risk of all-cause mortality. Mm. That's quite a powerful message. It, spe- it speaks to the overall picture, the bigger picture of things. I think it's. I, I think it's very difficult. It's very difficult for women, and I think it's very difficult for health professionals to get the right message across. We've always known about this breast cancer risk. That's been around for many, many, many years, mm-hmm. and I know people find it very useful to give women a sort of a chart with extra extra cases of breast cancer per hundred or per thousand women. And sometimes that can be helpful, but I think you need to pick your patients. I think, you know, some people, it's that's still, still such an abstract thing. And, you know, what they need to know is the risk is still low, albeit there is, is a risk. It's still low. And for the vast majority of women, the benefits of taking HRT outweigh the risks. Um, so, yeah, you've mentioned um, quite a few pros and cons there that are quite useful to talk to patients um, about HRT. Is there anything else um, that's useful to, to include when thinking about the pros and cons? I think often the headlines about breast cancer, that you know, you never get in a sort of an equivalent headline telling us that HRT is, is very successful in reducing risk of osteoporosis and fragility fractures. Most people don't realise that uh, a third of women who sustain a fragility fracture, a third of those women will, will die within 12 months of that fragility fracture. And it has a massive impact on quality of life of those women who are often more elderly. And I don't think that really that gets the same type of headlines. Mm. We've already mentioned that there is some evidence that 
the biggest killer of women, dementia, that there can be some beneficial effects of HRT on that. Um, These are incredible points. And is there diabetes as well? So, yeah, so diabetes, there's some evidence, cardiovascular risk, we've talked about osteoporosis, and, you know, some evidence with mental health problems, especially depression. Um, And just in terms of the um, osteoporosis there that you mentioned, Jack, am I right in thinking that you aren't supposed to prescribe HRT solely for the osteoporosis benefit? I mean, that's true for uh, menopausal women that are experiencing menopause in the normal age range, but we should be prescribing that to women under the age of 40 who are experiencing premature ovarian insufficiency. Perfect. Thank you. Um, and then it's probably we're talking about the contraindications. So the woman that we, we really shouldn't be prescribing HRT in. Um, would you mind kind of going through what those would be? So HRT, we need to be taking an individualised approach to um, HRT prescribing. Obviously, all women have their different baseline risks for various uh, conditions. Obviously, you wouldn't be giving HRT to somebody actively being treated for breast cancer or or, or that sort of thing. What I, what I want to make clear, though, is I don't think it's helpful if, if a woman with previous breast cancer comes to see you and wants some HRT because she's having really terrible symptoms. I don't think it's helpful for us to say, no, absolutely not, you can't have that. And that isn't because it isn't true. You know, often taking medications is weighing up risk and benefit. We do that all the time with lots of other medications. HRT should be no different to that. So, of course, you would want more advice about that and you would probably want to consult a specialist to talk to the woman about what her choices would be in terms of dealing with her menopausal symptoms. It will all depend on the type of cancer she's had. But those, obviously, that's that's a group of women who you might not want to obviously prescribe yourself without seeking further advice. Um, the majority of evidence shows that HRT is very safe, especially in women under the age of 60 and women within 10 years of their menopause. However, the WHI study, which I talked about previously, that study has continued over the last 20 years. And there was some evidence from that study that even if you did initiate HRT in a woman over the age of 60, that does not seem to increase mortality from breast cancer or cardiovascular disease. So again, it's not an absolute no. It really is about looking at the individual and sharing with her and her sharing with you you know, what the pros and cons for her in, for her in her particular circumstances are. Yeah. I think nice guidance as well that, you know, that things like the cardiovascular risk, hypertension is not a contraindication to HRT. Mm. And also we know now that if we can be sensible about the type of HRT that we give, that there is a, well, there is no risk of VTE with transdermal estrogen. So, our worries about women who are higher risk of VTE, we can prescribe um, preparations which we know will not increase their risk. That's great. I actually, whenever you were um, speaking there, I was like, oh, I'm just going to get up the um, the nice list to see um, what's on it in terms of contraindications, just to see what they say. Um, and I you're think right. You'll find there are no there are yeah. there are no real contraindications on that nice guidance. It is again yeah. all about weighing up risk and benefit. You're right because it's it's the like you said the breast cancer and the VTE risk which we've talked about. The only bit is the um, oh liver disease. Um, would that be a problem? 
Yes. So I think people with active liver disease, but again, I think you'd want to seek advice on that. I don't think it would be helpful. It's not really within our remit, is it, to know the ins and outs of people's liver disease and what might or might not be appropriate in terms of HRT. We need to get, we need to tell women that that is slightly beyond our expertise and that we need to get information from their liver specialist or certainly a menopause specialist even though there aren't many of them in the country um, we do need to get further advice with that and as again I, I would just reiterate I don't think we should be telling anyone you absolutely cannot have it yeah I think that's such an important point I think just kind of relaying a message to the clinicians out there is um, yeah if you're not sure check the guidelines if it's in that list on nice then don't say no get extra Indeed. help yeah yeah okay so we thought we'd now start with how you, what your process of deciding about different HRT is. Um, so say, for example, you've seen a patient, we're happy that the right course of treatment is HRT. You've had that pros and cons discussion with them. What is your process for deciding what type of HRT to give? So obviously your type of HRT is going to depend primarily on whether the patient has still got their uterus. Mm-hmm. So as we all know, if you have your, if you've had a hysterectomy and you don't have a womb, then you are absolutely fine to give just estrogen therapy. However, if you do have a uterus, in order to protect the endometrium from getting thicker and higher risk of endometrial cancer, then you need to prescribe a progesterone alongside that estrogen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Once you've decided that, you then there are lots and lots of preparations my i mean there's obviously you can look in the bnf there are absolutely tons my practice over the last few years has changed i haven't prescribed oral estrogen in a long time and that is because we know that transdermal estrogen is safest in terms of vte risk mm-hmm. and actually looking at the whi study the fp is also to be a lower risk of breast cancer with that as well So I always like to go for a transdermal preparation. Now, in recent years, probably in the last couple of years, I have also started to switch my prescribing to a a body identical type of progesterone. So the older types of progesterones are synthetic progesterones. The newer type is this micronized progesterone, which is body identical and associated with lower risk of breast cancer and VTE. So I keep it very, very simple. I like to prescribe a separate estrogen, either gel, patch or spray. Spray. And if they, yeah, there's a new spray. (laughs) Um, And if the if they need progesterone, then I will prescribe the micronized progesterone. There isn't a massive difference in cost. And I think we all like to prescribe as safely as we can. So I feel perfectly happy and justified in in using that treatment route. You're obviously going to get patients who who want to have combined patches. So the older type of patches with the estradiol, which is a body identical estrogen, but the synthetic progesterone with that. And of course, it's patient choice at the end of the day. All the risks are fairly low. So some women like don't like the, the bother of having to have an estrogen and then taking a progesterone at a different time um, and want it all in one patch. 
And that's absolutely fine too. The only thing I would say about combination patches is that you it's difficult to change the dose of estrogen if you need a bit more. Um, so that's why sometimes it's useful to keep them separate because then you can alter the, the dose of estrogen and, um, you know, as and when the, the you need to really. Yeah. And um, the micronized progesterone, is that a tablet? So that's a tablet and um, it's, it's called Eutrogestin in the UK. Obviously, there are two types of estrogen and progesterone um, regimes. When a woman is perimenopausal and still having periods, it's preferable to give her what we call cyclical or sequential HRT. So that means taking estrogen for half a month and then a progesterone daily for the second half of a month. And that's because, because they're still having periods. If you gave them continuous progesterone, which you can give to women who are more established into the menopause, they can have problems with bleeding. So in a perimenopause, I would usually start people on a cyclical HRT, estrogen every day for a month and progesterone added in in the second half of that month. I'd probably do that for six to 12 months. And then if they were sick of having, and that that causes obviously a monthly bleed. So if they were sick of that, and, and fair enough, you know, women don't particularly like to have periods, then you might then consider moving them on to a, a continuous. So you would give progesterone every single day and that would make them period free. Ah, so it's estrogen daily yeah. and then progesterone to every alternating two weeks. Yeah. So I so I would say how I do it is I there's a four, in a four week period, you take estrogen every day. In the final two weeks of that four week period, you add in, in progesterone. Right. Yeah. With the estrogen. So yeah, it's so it's a cyclical progesterone taking really. Perfect. Um and just a um a question about um the dosing. Yeah. Kind of how do you decide which dose to start on, when to change doses? Yeah, I mean you know, I start I, I think it depends who the patient is. You, you may find that, you know, women who are younger require higher doses to control their symptoms because their estrogen levels are generally are higher. Um, and so they're having a much bigger effect having those decreased levels. Um, and in older women, they might need a bit less. So I would go in at the lower end and then obviously review quite, you know, I'd probably see them again in three months just to see how they were getting on. And I would I would alter the dose accordingly. Just to go back to the progesterone. Um, so the eutrogestin is, if you want to talk about the doses, if we're doing it cyclically, we would do... 200 milligrams every night in that two-week period if they're taking it as a as a continuous preparation it would be 100 milligrams at night mm. Grand. now those that eutrogestion comes in capsules and some women are quite sensitive to progesterone and, and when they take it orally they can have some side effects so it is off license, but you can give the progesterones vaginally. And sometimes that really helps women who don't like the, the side effects of the progesterone, but it's at half the dose. So again, cyclically, you would give 100 milligrams every day rather than the 200. And if you were doing it up for a continuous preparation, you would give one every other day because there isn't, there's no such, there's no half dose. There's no 50 milligrams, sadly. Yeah. Oh, that's really useful. Yeah. When would you consider doing that? What kind of side effects would people report that would make you think, let's change this? So the the progesterone 
is it does have a, a slightly sedative effect, which is why I tell people to take it at night. Some people actually quite like that sort of side effects because especially if they've not been sleeping very well but the the usual type of progesterone side effects that we know we know well so headachey you know perhaps sore breasts that sort of thing but you know it's just that it's just another way to sort of decrease the uh, side effect you know problems really Grand. the as well as the estrogen only obviously the transdermal estrogen and the progesterone I also do advocate actually estrogen transdermally and a, mor- and a morena coil. Cause although the morena coil contains the older synthetic type of progesterone, it's only in a small dose and only acts locally. So I think that's a very helpful way to take HRT, especially in women who require contraception. Mm. Just to remind people, they do need to change that morena every five years. Um, did you change your practice from other types of progesterone to the micronized progesterone because of the progesterone side effects? Or? Um, so I changed that because I just really looking around at the evidence and um, I think it's actually really, I'm going to signpost people to a website called Menopause Doctor, which is run by a doctor called Louise Newsom, who has done a load of work on menopause and it's a really good um, resource, really evidence-based advice about how to help health professionals and women. I do actually signpost patients to that. She also has a app, which I signpost women to called Balance. Mm, And that is very useful because it helps patients track their menopausal symptoms. And there's a load of other information about that on, on, uh, on the app, which I, I personally, I found useful. And I know patients have found very useful too. Um, Louise Newsom on her website, um, there's a resource called Easy HRT Prescribing, and it's very, very straightforward. It's evidence-based, and it also shows costs of different preparations of estrogen and progesterone, and there really is very little difference in between them. So that might, it just will help people. There's also um, conversions of different doses of estrogen, which is also helpful if you're take if you're swapping somebody from a oral estrogen to a um, a transdermal. Ah, yeah, very useful. I th- I think I'd just like to say as well that you know we don't have to make a decision about HRT on that first consultation. You don't need to you know rush everything in, and it's a lot for a woman to take in. We need to empower them, and the way we do that is by signposting them to get getting information and if that means a couple of consultations to actually get them established on the right treatment or not then um, I think it's worth doing over a few consultations rather than just trying to cram everything in yeah um, I'm sure I thought of something else. Oh, yes. Before we move on to the um, just the last section, um, I wondered if it's worth touching on um, bleeding and um, the continuous method. So bleeding when taking HRT is actually quite common and very common in the first few months of taking it. Obviously, again, individualised care, but if a woman has changed or altered dose of HRT and she experiences some bleeding, I think she can be reassured that that's totally down to the bleeding that has, has occurred because of the change in the uh, intake in the hormones. However, if that persists, then I would obviously, you would you would do the appropriate investigation. Yeah. Um, you mentioned there about using the marina. Um, when should we consider contraception for perimenopausal women and what are the options? So 
um, perimenopausal women, if people are still having periods, they need to use contraception. If they have not had, if they are under 50 and haven't had a period for a year, they need to use contraception for another 12 months. Mm -hmm. If they are over 50 and haven't had a period for a year, they are fine to stop contraception. Okay. And nobody needs to use contraception at the age of 55 and above. Grand. However, obviously, it's difficult if people are using hormones as contraception to know whether they're perimenopause or not, because you can't rely on their period history. Then you can measure an FSH level. And if that is high, then they would need to use a contraception for a further two years. If they are over 50 and want to know if they can stop contraception, they can have an FSH level measured. And if it's high, they need to use contraception for a further 12 months. And then, so you mentioned about the coil. If the coil's not an option, how would you how would you do a HRT re- regime with contraception? I'd follow what I would normally do in a contraceptive uh, consultation, as we know, the combined pill is safe up to the age of 50 as long as there are no other high, um, high risks of of things. It's quite a useful contraceptive actually in people who are younger because it gives them some estrogen. Yeah. So women who are perimenopausal and younger actually do quite well with taking the combined oral contraceptive pill. If you're worried about higher risks associated with the combined pill, then all the other contraceptives are absolutely fine to take alongside HRT. So the Depo-Provera injection, which has to be stopped at 50, but the implant, the progesterone-only pill, the copper coil, all those can be used up to the age of 55 and alongside HRT. Interesting. That's good. Um, So... in the guidelines we've seen about testosterone, when would you be thinking about starting that? So NICE guidance says that we, although it's off license, that they suggest that we can prescribe testosterone for women who are experiencing loss of libido. As I say, the preparations available in the UK are unlicensed for this, but there are a couple of preparations that can be used. Um, and there is also a cream which is only available privately. Women actually, which was a fact I didn't really know, but women have three times as much testosterone as they do estrogen in their bodies pre-menopausally. And then after the menopause, the testosterone levels drop just as the estrogen levels do. So there is gathering evidence that actually the symptoms, symptoms of sort of brain fog and memory problems are possibly attributed to the testosterone depletion um, as well as the estrogen depletion so yes I think it's something that people should definitely think about prescribing if those are symptoms that uh, a woman is particularly presenting with and it it might be worth a go. I think we've all maybe had those um, difficult conversations with patients about stopping HRT Um, so we thought it was worthwhile maybe just um, putting in a question about when you might consider ending a course. So I think the general consensus is that although it is very safe to take under the age of 60. There isn't a huge amount of evidence that these risks are really magnified over that age. And as I've already mentioned, certainly from the WHI study, there was no increased mortality 
from breast cancer or cardiovascular disease in women over the age of 60. However, our risk of breast cancer and cardiovascular disease naturally gets higher as we get older. So we just need to be careful. And I think as long as we are telling women the risks and the benefits, I'm not a great believer in saying to women, you have to come off your HRT. You know, it isn't really fair. I think it needs to be a, uh, we're, we've, hopefully come away from the very paternalistic type of consultation and very much shared decision making should be how we're approaching consultations with patients and I don't have a definite answer to that I I would take every woman as they came along and if she was telling me I absolutely cannot survive without my HRT and I am very willing to take the risk of those increased cases of breast cancer and I am aware what that might mean for me, but I want to carry on with my HRT. I would say fine. Yeah, as long as it's been a documented, yeah. um, informed, well documented, choice, be- yeah, yeah benefits and risks. I, th- I think we need to get away from just telling people they can't have something. Yeah. Mm. It's an it's an interesting one that you do find those discussions quite difficult to try and balance that risk for people, or tr- you know, try and help them especially kind of with the change in thinking that's come along with the the breast cancer risk so yeah and and obviously that risk is still there i'm not i'm not trying to shy away from that but I, but i think we need to get it into context and we also need to balance that with quality of life yeah. and you know a few years ago i would I, I was desperately trying to get there was we have women in their 70s on hrt and they were telling us no i absolutely need to stay on it and i would be saying no you de- you know you shouldn't be on it you shouldn't be on it and that actually probably isn't true. It, when you weigh up risk and benefit, it may be for them that they want to to take that risk because otherwise their quality of life is just rubbish. Yeah, it's like you say, the individualised approach is, is key, definitely. Um, so I guess that might be one of your take home points. But um, what do you want people to take away from this discussion today? I think I would say that guidelines and evidence support the fact that the benefits of taking HRT for the vast majority of women outweigh the risks. I think that would be the first thing to say. I would also ask people to consider when they're having a consultation with a female, possibly perimenopausal woman, that we talk about benefits as well as the breast cancer risks, because I think that tends to dominate and perhaps is slightly magnified but we need, so I would say we need to take a balanced approach. And I would also say to remember those women with genitourinary symptoms who you might think, oh, they're well past the menopause, but actually would really, really benefit from topical oestrogen. It's cheap and it's safe. A 10, if you give a woman a 10 microgram Vagifem used regularly over 12 months, it's less than taking one tablet of a one milligram oestrogen. Yeah, I love that. I throw that out all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's, great. it's so handy to have these bits of kind of contextualising what's happening. So yeah, oh, that's really good. Thank you so much, Jack. That was amazing. Yeah, it's great. So that was a 
an amazing chat, wasn't it, Lisa? Oh yes. But love the topic of HRT and menopause. Yeah, it was. It was so good. I, I, I think it's been a long time coming us doing one on this, and I'm, yeah. I'm quite happy with how it's turned out. Yeah, I think that just the quality of the level of information, the fact that you can kind of see the bigger picture with it, is is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I know, and I know we c- we couldn't cover everything. There were so many questions that we wanted to ask, but. But hopefully this is um, this is a good kind of uh, little bits of tidbits that are helpful for people when approaching it. What are your learning points? Um, I uh, near the beginning I was quite interested, obviously now uh, when she was talking about socio-economic um, status and the fact that um, the massive health inequalities that there are with regards mm. to HRT, which I wasn't aware of, and how the the women from lower socio-economic groups are are less likely to be prescribed HRT and use HRT. Um, and I think that's just something maybe to be aware of in everyday practice um, to try mm. and, and reduce that inequality because it's something we can actually act on, yeah. which was quite interesting. It is true. Like I, I think having clinicians or prescribers who are confident in discussing people's options for managing that perimenopausal and menopausal time and symptoms, I think that that's the main thing, isn't it? Is that if you've got the information that you can give in a way that's understandable to people and that they can weigh up those risks and benefits then actually then you've kind of unlocked the whole thing isn't it exactly and and that's another thing that I'd written down was just that I think the main thing I kind of took away was just the fact that it needs to be an individualized approach and Mm -hmm. and that's definitely coming more into medicine more there's realistic medicine um, and and there's this whole kind of avenue that's opening up but um, I think within HRT it's really quite important um, and and just to be able to empower women to make their own decisions kind of be an enabler um, in that respect and just that message that she had about just never saying an absolute no if if you feel uncomfortable with it then ask for further advice from a specialist but um, yeah just I think that's that that was that message nice message that came across. Mm, yeah absolutely I really liked the part when she talked about genitary urinary syndrome of the menopause um, and that sort of clustering of all the symptoms of vulvovaginal atrophy and all the um, urinary symptoms as well into that group and to have a a sort of plan there about how to manage those be incredibly helpful for patients oh for sure especially because you said I'd I'd written down about the 70% of women experiencing that Um, so it's a large number Um, and, and if we've got something that can be used then like why not use it if it's safe um, yeah. for for a woman? Uh, and and so the other thing that I've um, I'd re- written down was just the um, the comparison of the risk um, of breast cancer and HRT with something like obesity. And I don't think we often take that step back and compare conceptually risks like that. Yeah. Um, and it might be more understandable to a woman if you explain it to her in that way, um, yeah. because actually far more women are going to be in the obese threshold than than are taking HRT at the moment and mm-hmm. so it, I think it just might put it in a bit of context um, mm-hmm. for women if it's explained in that way. Mm. Yeah and the actual management section was really really amazing like I was expecting it to be a lot more complicated but it's nice to have that guide where it's somebody's practice and, and why she does what she does and the also the link to, with uh, Louise Newsom's website and um, she mentioned about the podcast that she does as well so yeah it's great great resources and we'll put links to all of those obviously of course um so if you want to get in touch with us there's a couple of ways that you can do so um you can send us an email and our email address is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com or you can find us on twitter and our handle is at pckbpodcast and um, we also have a survey link um which is anonymous 
nice and short and we always have that in the episode description if you want to use that instead yes and we love those and um, any any other ways of getting in touch or sharing are always really really helpful so facebook or friends or uh, apple podcast reviews thank you very much to everyone that are filling those in and um i think that's it yes till next time i'm primary care knowledge beast Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. This was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.